Try four weeks of The Spectator absolutely free. And, for this month only, you'll receive a Spectator wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. In last week's Spectator, I wrote an article about counter-knowledge, which was the title of a book I wrote 12 years ago. It was about the tsunami of bogus information that was making it ever harder to distinguish fact from fiction, truth from falsehood, because it was dressed up to look like respectable research. I suggested that we needed to do something to remedy the situation. Of course, I had no idea that we would find ourselves today in a situation in which the supply of news has basically been hijacked by social media, by Facebook and YouTube, that all sorts of unbelievably creepy conspiracy theories would flourish there, and that the mainstream media would respond, well, firstly, by trying to get into bed with the social media giants, and secondly, by doubling down on their notorious liberal bias. So today it seems as if we're confronted by lies and censorship from both right and left, if you can still talk about right and left as meaningful concepts. The blurring of the distinction between truth and falsehood has become agonisingly obvious during the Covid pandemic, which has seen the rise of the most grotesque conspiracy theories, at a time when, alas, academics and other official sources of information have become sloppy and partisan in the way they present their research, something The Spectator has been drawing attention to since the beginning of the pandemic. And this, of course, is the environment in which the churches have been trying to survive for a long time, and failing. Because not only do they not know how to use social media, but they don't really know how to talk to people. And that's never been more evident than during this coronavirus crisis, during which bishops seem to have locked down their brains as well as their churches. My guest this week is the American journalist and businessman Robert Vargas, who's based in Washington, D.C., and has some very interesting ideas about how, as I put it in the article, in this digital era, the more we know, the less we know. He's seen liberal politicians and their apparatchiks and the media inside the Beltway. And he also has experience of the conservative Catholic bubble in Washington. He has some alarming but convincing ideas about why we find ourselves in this mess. Robert, I want to begin by asking you about the liberal elite, which isn't a very satisfactory phrase, I suppose, but it's difficult to know how to describe the network of wealthy and influential people, Republicans as well as Democrats, who operate inside the Beltway, while the rest of the world, driven mad by their smug opinions and not trusting them, goes to social media for often dubious information. You've met plenty of these people, haven't you? Uh, Yes, plenty of them. And I've met people who are inside the elite conservative bubble, and the striking thing is that most of the time, they're almost the exact same people because they live so close to one another and they share so many of the same values. 
Just to expand on that for one moment, I mean, I've been at the quintessential D.C. cocktail parties, cocktail parties in Georgetown. They are what you think they are. All the stereotypes that you can muster in your brain about a D.C. cocktail party is what it actually is. There are staffers for members of Congress and senators. There are think tankers. All the stock characters you think are going to be there are there, and they all think the same thing. Now, that might seem less obviously true right now in the era of COVID with so many theories floating around. But still, there's some sort of consensus among Washington liberals or the media elite or whatever you want to call them. First, that automatically any measure taken by a government headed by Donald Trump must be wrong. And secondly, liberals seem relatively enthusiastic about lockdown. Certainly it's the case in this country that the more liberal a Catholic bishop, the more fanatical he's likely to be about closing his churches. Your views on COVID have almost become a kind of placeholder for what your broader politics are. Like, I could walk outside, just to give you an example, I could walk outside on the street, and I could, just by telling whether somebody is wearing a mask or not outside, I can give you a non-trivial guess as to what their politics are. So the masks are liberals? The masks are liberals, yeah. Of course, we're in D.C., so the chance of the person not wearing a mask being a conservative is still low, but you get my point. Well, I think I do, which is the the range of opinions which it's acceptable to express in enlightened liberal circles is pretty narrow. I always say when I walk into a room, I could tell who the conservative is because he's not talking about politics. The one who's quiet is the conservative. That's in Washington, though. No, that's, it's just about everywhere, to be honest with you. I mean, when I was in New York, I could tell this. When I was in college, I could tell this. In the workplace, I can tell this. You can sort of suss it out by who's not saying anything at certain moments. But hasn't this always been true up to a point, that there are these people whom pollsters call shy conservatives, who largely kept their views to themselves, certainly if they were working in the professional world? talked about politics to their families and their friends, but certainly not in the workplace, and expressed those views in the privacy of the polling booth. That might have been true in the past. I think that's like a kind of idealized way of looking at it. I think nowadays it's simply social pressure. You can lose your job literally if you have a certain opinion, so you're more likely to keep quiet about it. It's not just about some kind of Norman Rockwell fantasy where, oh, I do it at the polling booth and that's it. I think it's, it's much darker than that nowadays. We'll come to that darker side in a minute when we talk about YouTube. I don't want to drag you into a discussion of the details of these conspiracy theories because, as we've heard, they're pretty risible. They have a short shelf life. Not that many people subscribe to them wholeheartedly. I'm more interested in the broader context, the huge changes to society and particularly the way we consume media, which is blurring the distinction between information that's reliable and information that's unreliable. Now, you might wonder, what's this got to do with religion? Well, have you looked at Twitter recently? Prominent clergy and religious activists absolutely obsessed with secular politics both right and left, but actually especially the left, which I think perhaps bears out what you were saying earlier. So, to take a particular bet noir of mine, a Jesuit priest, 
Thomas Rees, SJ, leading Vatican commentator. I'm scrolling through his Twitter feed now. And in the space of, what, 24 hours, he says, Other countries are winning against the virus. We are quitting. Denmark's death rate from COVID is less than that of Sweden's, because Sweden didn't go for lockdown, so he doesn't like that. He wants us to read a piece saying, the real scandal isn't what China did to us, it's what we did to ourselves. Good God. Don't be fooled by America's flattening curve. Why the GOP may lose everything. I think you get the picture. Now, Robert, you work for a time in American Catholic publishing, dealing on the whole with conservatives rather than liberals. Did you find this same obsessive preoccupation with secular politics? Well, what I learned from operating in the Catholic world to the extent that I did, and, and I did it as a businessman, not as a religious activist, but even so, the main takeaway was that behind the scenes, nobody actually talks about religion. It's all about power and politics. I never once heard anything about Jesus when I was talking to Catholics in Washington, D.C. Never once did I hear anything about Catholic doctrine, the catechism, or anything like that. It was all about who's doing what to whom, who's in with whom, who's doing this, who's doing that, how can we do this, how can we do that. It was essentially a political movement. This, this would be very jarring to somebody in Ohio who is, you know, attending Mass and thinking that the Catholics back in D.C., behind the scenes are talking about Catholic matters when it really just sounds like a standard issue, you know, political action committee meeting. That was very, very surprising to me. And we're not just talking church politics. It was actual politics, right. It wasn't just, you know, this and that bishop and the bishop's conference and this and that and the other thing. It was GOP and Democrats. It was Washington, classic Washington politics. I would say my experience was a bit different because I was on the editorial side. So the influential, wealthy Catholic conservatives I met were almost without exception deeply committed to their faith. And I had a lot of trouble persuading various British idiots that American conservative Catholicism is not a lifestyle choice or some sort of cultural carapace. But nonetheless, these folk were, most of them, secular politics junkies. The world of Congress was never very far away. And it brings us to the phenomenon of collapsing boundaries between religion and politics, between politics and entertainment, between politics and personality, knowledge and counter-knowledge, as I call it. And a lot of that has to do with digital technology. So it's a complicated situation because the liberal versus conservative thing does mean something. But on the other hand, you can't really just talk of two echo chambers. Not if you've looked at YouTube, which has a massive influence, and in which everything is unstable, and the liberal versus conservative division is sometimes hard to locate. Partly because on YouTube, at least, people shift their ground all the time. They have to. They have to keep their numbers up. Right. One of the reasons that might happen so quickly is that the YouTube commenter, just as audiences are becoming more specialized in a sense. If people latch on to figures for a particular reason, 
because you believe in X, because you believe in Y, because you believe in Z. If the commentator deviates from that even one step, he could lose his entire audience. So the margin for error is so small nowadays. If the, if, if the YouTube star, for instance, says something that's even a half step out of place of what he's been saying, his audience will leave him. And leaving doesn't mean switching party allegiance or leaving a religious denomination. It just means switching to another channel. And there's an infinite number of them to switch to, so costs them nothing. They're not paying for the commentator's views. They're getting it for free on social media. It's no skin off their back to go find somebody else who can cater to their views. So it's weird, because you can say anything you like on YouTube, and if people like it, however weird it is, then you can gain an absolutely huge following overnight, and also lose it overnight if they stop liking you. You can fall like Lucifer, and if you're on the right, they may actually decide that you are satanic. So you have the strange situation where people suddenly leave, but many of them don't just leave, they actually start hating you, having once idolised you. And you might know why you've pissed them off, but you're not entirely sure who it is that you've annoyed, because you weren't sure who your supporters were, and now you're not sure who your enemies are. You see what people are like under pressure. And you realize how fragile society is, civil society. And what are they like under pressure? They're herd animals, which is what all humans are, and they're going to do what they need to do to survive. They're also, most of them are very weak-minded. In primitive societies, independent thinkers were, you know, killed very quickly. They were clubbed to death quickly for, you know, thinking outside of the herd box. I mean, I'm no scientist, but I don't think humans have lost that impulse over the years. So herd behavior is all around us all the time. Well, the herd is dispersed and atomized, but the consequences of going against it are still very real. It's like, I don't know, a herd without shepherds. Certainly, lots of Catholics and Anglicans would tell you they know exactly what it feels like to be without shepherds right at the moment. Because people don't want shepherds. They want the endless digital stimulation that the internet provides. They want charisma. But that's not to say there's no such thing as police, or at least a policing mechanism. And the crime, as you pointed out, is, is always the same. Saying the wrong thing. And just as you're not sure who your audiences are, so you're not really sure who the police are. Perhaps because we're not really talking about police so much as informers like, I don't know, the, the volunteer snitches of East Germany. I mean, look at the shit that was flung at Michael Gove because he had a couple of books by loony right-wingers on his shelves, in addition to lots of books by loony left-wingers and the vast majority of reputable scholarship because it's a library, big library. So it wasn't even anything to snitch about. And it was sinister. And right-wingers do it too, especially in America. You try saying something complimentary about Father James Martin, the Jesuit priest, who's very, very tedious and wrong, I think, on LGBT matters and is also pretty monochrome lefty politically, but has, I think, an inspiring spirituality. But you try saying that and suddenly you've gone over to the homosexual New World Order. 
Now, if I say that, I know I'll get into trouble. But a lot of the time, people simply don't know where the herd has shifted or where their particular bit of the herd has shifted. And it makes them anxious. And so there's no debate outside of social media, if you can call that debate, or the very carefully monitored exchanges between like-minded people on the mainstream media. Right. Well, that's another thing. Is, see, in the past, argument meant that you were able to filter out a lot of nonsense in your views and other people's views. It was a kind of winnowing process. Nowadays, there is no arguing because the risk is too high. It's too polarized. Somebody will get offended. The risk is, is too high to use argument to filter through all the nonsense out there. So people are just home, alone, watching YouTube, on Twitter, and they're just you know, digesting what they want to, and that's it. And there is, really is no process they use to decide what's true and what's not. And that, ironically, creates the sort of confusion that we associated with the citizens of authoritarian states that managed to control information, to starve their citizens of information. People didn't know what was true and what was false. That's true. How healthy could that possibly be? I think what this does is it makes it impossible to make mistakes. And that's one of the ways humans learn right from wrong, I think. When interactions become so fake and so stilted, because everybody's worrying about either offending somebody else or transgressing against something, and the consequences are so dire, you lose something. You also, to a large extent, are forced to say things you don't agree with, which breaks you down in a way. I mean, it's humiliating when you know you don't believe something, but feel compelled to say it anyway. I think everybody fancies themselves a freedom fighter, in a way, or thinks, well, I would never succumb so easily to that kind of pressure, or I would always be the one asserting my freedom in some way, at least asserting my personal views. Look how easily most people fall. You can almost get a taste of what it was like in a country like East Germany nowadays, especially with this virus. You can call me crazy, and I don't care. I've always said that if there's one thing I leave this earth with having come up with, it would be this. My own personal definition of totalitarianism, which I've never actually seen written down. My definition of totalitarianism is objective penalties for subjective crimes. And one of the things that makes that so pernicious is that you never know whether you're transgressing or not. In my opinion, this is the most damaging thing to public life because everything else becomes meaningless. You, you can't talk to anybody. Politics becomes a minefield. It's seeped into every area of life so that your social life, the cultural life, the economic life of the country has become taken over by politics. And it's a politics that you can't discuss with anybody. Robert Wagas, thanks very much. And to be continued.
try four weeks of The Spectator absolutely free. And, for this month only, you'll receive a Spectator wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger.com 